Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. A, a great pleasure to uh, introduce uh, Gillian Ted, um, who has produced, I don't know how she does it, uh, 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 the second volume of the book, this one, Fool's Gold, How Unrestrained Greed Corrupted the Dream, Shattered Global Markets, and Unleashed a Catastrophe. And um, uh, this from somebody who is extremely well qualified uh, uh, to, uh, to talk about uh, catastrophes, not in the usual sense that uh, any decline in uh, GDP below trend uh, is considered a catastrophe for the politician in, in question, but something that uh, could destroy societies, um, cause vast uh, uh, political upheaval and indeed um, uh, cause dissertations to be written uh, possibly for centuries afterwards. We look, we're going through one of these times. Gillian um, started off uh, 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 as a sensible scholar, uh, social anthropologist, and her first uh, catastrophe uh, that she experienced and witnessed up close was uh, the post-Soviet by the time it was that, or Soviet, uh, Tajikistan, just uh, at the time of the dissolution of the Soviet Empire, uh, a country that um, you know, fell apart in a civil war that cost more than 60,000 lives, and where um, uh, forms of governance su subsequently were reintroduced that uh, uh, were not now exactly uh, according to uh, um, the dictates of Amnesty International and uh, the League of Women Voters. So um, uh, the second catastrophe that she then reported on, I wrote a book on, um, Saving the Sun, uh, S-U-N, uh, and not a newspaper, I hate it, because I don't think she really wants to save the sun at all, but this was how Wall Street Maverick shook up Japan's financial world and made billions, because no sooner had she arrived in Japan when she switched to uh, the journalistic side of the state, and that the Japanese bank decided to take a, a, a holiday from being. And, uh, uh, and that experience of a collapsing banking system, actually a collapse in slow motion, uh, uh, well, uh, is, informed her latest book. I'm really looking forward to uh, hearing her introduce the themes and, uh, and expand on them here. Gillian uh, will talk for uh, up to for about 30 minutes, or however long she wants, really, because we have time. And um, uh, after that, it will be uh, Q&A. And um, has also said that when she finishes, which should be somewhere between quarter to 8 uh, p.m., I hate to say, and, uh, and 8 o'clock thereabouts, um, she's willing to sign copies of the book. And uh, so, Gillian. Thank you very much indeed for that kind introduction, Willem. Um, some people have described me as a Cassandra over the last couple of years, but after Willem's introduction, you probably think that I'm more like a voice of doom, that when I turn up, everything's about to collapse. <laughs> um, it does feel a bit like that sometimes. But I want to explain a bit about how I came to write this book, um, and then give you a rough pricey of what my key arguments in it are, um, and then open it up to any questions and do feel free to fling anything you want at me um, about either anthropology, journalism, 
finance or even the story of JP Morgan, which is what this book is revolved, um, centered around. But I should start by saying that the inspiration for this book really came about, or really kicked off about five years ago, when I was working on the Lex column of the Financial Times. That's the comment um, part of the FT that covers the corporate and economic world on the back of the first section. And I was deputy head of Lex, but we didn't actually have a head of Lex, so I was in charge of thinking about strategy. And one of the things the editor asked me to do one day was to draw up a plan about what we should be covering on Lex, what we should be writing about. So I started off doing a straightforward um, memo about, you know, we should do X number of pieces about telecoms and Y number about banks. And then I suddenly thought, well, maybe we should go back to basics and ask, what is a point of Lex? What is a point of financial journalism? What are we trying to do? So I sat down and tried to sketch out a map of how I thought the City of London worked, and then compared it to what we were doing, and was struck immediately by a striking um, disjuncture, which is that although the Lex column and the FT and pretty much every other media outlet was obsessively covering the equity markets um, and the world of M&A, which was seen as a glamour part of finance, um, there was a whole swathe of debt and derivatives and credits going on in the city of London, which was not very well covered. It was covered a bit by the <laughs> FT, um, almost not at all by anybody else. So I fired off a series of memos to the editor and others, which came to be known as the iceberg memos, where I basically said the financial system was starting to look like a giant iceberg. There was a tiny bit poking above the water, which was what was being covered by the press, um, in quite a commoditized fashion, and there was a great big shadowy underbelly underneath the water which was being pretty much ignored. So we ought to do something about it. So they did do something about it, and they moved me off Lex onto the capital markets team, <laughs> um, which at the time seemed almost akin to career suicide, because the capital markets team was one of the least glamorous parts of the FT. It was a bit like the Siberia of the FT in some respects, and it sat in a cupboard quite a long way from the main newsroom, um, and most of its product sat on page 423 of the FT rather than in the glamorous front section. In fact, I was actually pregnant at the time, and so quite a lot of people thought I'd gone off on the mommy track, and I was clearly looking for a quiet life by going off to cover the credit world. Um, but anyway, I landed in capital markets, and one of the first things I did on almost the first week I arrived was decide to get out there and get dirty and to travel out to see how the credit markets actually operated in reality. And almost by chance, really quite randomly, I picked up an invitation that had just plopped through the um, mailbox of the FT's capital markets team to attend a conference down in Nice at the Acropolis Center. So I flew down in, I think it was April, May April time, 2005, to go to this vast um, modernist French building called the Acropolis Center for a conference on CDOs organized by the European Securitization Forum, which at that happy time was a complete unknown to me. And so I walked in one day to this giant conference center, and it really felt like moving into another universe. Because by that stage, I'd been working on Lex for a while, and I thought I knew a bit about finance, a bit about corporate finance, a bit about economics. But frankly, when I sat down on that first day in the plush lecture theater, 
surrounded by several hundred identikit young bankers, um, all of whom were wearing that sort of a uniform of you know casual, smart casual. Um, the only way you knew how wealthy they were was because they all had big watches or big earrings. Um, I sat there in the crowd, and frankly, I didn't understand head or tail of what they were talking about. Um, there was a series of presentations and PowerPoints, and frankly, they could have been talking ancient Chinese. Um, and on one level, it was very alienating. On another level, it wasn't, because as Willem noted, I have a very weird background for being a financial journalist. Um, I actually trained as a social anthropologist. I did a PhD up at Cambridge and in the former Soviet Union um, before I became a journalist. Um, under the great Ernest Gellner, who I think was actually affiliated to LSE at one stage. And what you basically do as a social anthropologist is put yourself into um, strange situations, other societies, you try and embed yourself into other cultures, and you conduct what's called participant observation, which basically means sitting around for a long time and watching what people do, talking to people, and trying to build up a picture of how that society works, what makes it tick from the bottom up. And I've done that once in Tajikistan, where I spent about a year up in a remote Tajik village. Um, I've also done it in Tibet. Um, and I did it in a way um, in Japan as well, because when I came to write my book about Japanese finance, I spent a lot of time tracking one particular Japanese bank, which, believe me, is about as peculiar in some ways as Tajikistan or even CDO bankers. And as I looked around that hall in Nice back in um, 2005, I was immediately struck by this sense of deja vu because it felt in some ways very similar to the type of Tajik weddings that I used to study for my PhD. You had basically a very ritualistic event which was clearly designed to gather the scattered tribe together in a way that they could forge all manner of new alliances. But also by gathering them together, they could also reaffirm their dominant assumptions and ideologies and ideas that bound them all together. Now, in theory, the ideas that they were busy reaffirming or spreading at the CDO conference were these complicated concepts about CDO squared or CDO cubed and all the Greek alphabet that they were putting up on the PowerPoints. But while affirming those ideas, they were also presenting another set of assumptions, which was basically that money was the final frontier, or one of the final frontiers. It was a place for massive, exciting, frenetic innovation. Um, and that innovation, it was widely assumed, was a terrifically good thing. It was going to de deliver massive goods for society, and of course it was also going to make those bankers very rich. And last but not least, it was also widely assumed that it was quite natural that 99.9% .9 of humanity had not the foggiest idea what these guys were doing. Um, it didn't seem odd to them that they were talking a language that no one else understood, um, nor did it seem odd to them that almost nobody else was paying attention, even though the numbers they were tossing around were vast. Um, in fact, they were quite surprised that I was there at all because before I pitched up, um, no mainstream journalist had bothered to attend that type of conference before. So I was intrigued. Um, I was particularly intrigued because I also wanted to know who were all those young people sitting around me in the hall who, as I say, all looked rather identical at first glance. So because I was sitting in the dark and not really understanding what was being said in the first few hours, I started flicking through the brochures and read their bios and spotted that actually an awful lot of them appeared to have come from J.P. Morgan. And that, frankly, was a surprise because, as you may recall, um, back in 2005, 
if you were a journalist covering a city, you tended to assume that it was Goldman Sachs that ruled the world. And Goldman Sachs alumni tended to crop up everywhere and anywhere. And I'd never actually been in a situation where actually JP Morgan alumni were cropping up everywhere. So I turned around and I nudged my fellow rather shocked banker, who was horrified when he found out I was a journalist, um, and said, you know, what's happening? And I never found out who he was, but, you know, hey, he changed my life. Um, he uttered the immortal words, there's one thing you need to know about the credit markets. The Morgan Mafia are people who created them. Now, that is a gross exaggeration, and I'll come back later into the degree to which the Morgan Mafia, as they like to call themselves, or as they don't like to call themselves, they hate calling themselves that. <laughs> they begged me not to call the book the Morgan Mafia. Um, but I'll come back to the question of the degree to which they did or did not build the new credit world in, later on. But that obviously in, immediately intrigued me. So I went back in the spring of 2005 to the FT, and we started as a team trying to get to grips with this strange new world, with this strange new language, much in the same way that I tried to get to grips with Tajikistan um, all those years before. And these days, it's, um, you know, I've, a number of people have very kindly said um, that, you know, somehow I predicted the credit crisis and I warned of great troubles brewing in the credit worlds um, back all those years ago. Um, on one level, that frankly is bollocks, because I didn't predict the scale of the current crisis, nor did I predict the precise timing. Um, but what I did notice as I started trying to explore the new world was that there seemed to be some very dangerous aspects to it. And I wrote about this quite a lot. Um, the aspect that struck me first of all was that there was an enormous amount of highly complex, very feverish activity going on that almost nobody seemed to really fully understand. Um, a few people inside the system did understand quite a bit, but the ones who did understand it almost all had a vested interest in keeping the game going. And even those who did understand it tended to understand only little bits of it. They didn't understand how all the bits of it added up together. Um, which put me in quite a peculiar position as a journalist because I would bounce from bank to bank, sector to sector, asking questions, you know, not desperately well informed, frankly, half the time, and discover that although I didn't know how to drill down into the details that the bankers themselves were drilling down into, I often had, in some ways, almost a better holistic picture of how it all added up than some of the practitioners themselves. Um, it reminded me, oddly enough, of a situation in the Tajik village where there was a gender demarcation and the women couldn't go into the mosque and the men couldn't go into the kitchens. Um, but because I had a very strange, anomalous situation as an anthropologist, I could do both. And I sort of had quite an interesting overview. Um, so that struck me straight away. The other thing that struck me straight away was that outside banking, almost nobody else cared a jot about all this. And it used to just stun me, the degree to which other papers weren't covering this stuff, um, but also the degree to which the politicians were completely uninterested. Um, I mean, there's a mile, maybe a mile and a half, that sits between the city of London and Westminster. Um, and frankly, never mind the fact that the city drives so much of the UK revenues, as we are now discovering, and never mind the fact that actually the city was not being driven by the glamorous world of M&A, but all the derivatives and stuff, politicians in Westminster seem to be completely uninterested. Um, I know this because I went to, um, I wrote a few ranting columns about this, and then I went to a seminar to talk to MPs about all this, and it, we were supposed to be talking about um, risk and derivatives, and all they wanted to talk about was car insurance. Um, <laughs> seriously. Um, 
The other big problem was, though, that struck me, and I will come back onto J.P. Morgan in a minute, but the other big problem was that the few people who did spot problems um, generally had tremendous difficulty in getting their message out, their warnings out. There was a very powerful dominant ideology that was particularly championed by the Fed, which said that innovation was a very good thing, that slicing and dicing credit risk in the way that all these instruments were doing had made the financial system dramatically safer. And so the reason why we were living in such an extraordinarily benign credit period was not because we were enjoying a crazy credit bubble with massive amounts of leverage, which was basically creating um, an asset boom and huge distortions. The theory that was being pumped out was that actually innovation had parceled risk around the world in such a way that made the system safer and stronger and more efficient and rational, so there was no need to worry. Um, I write in my book about how the BIS had big misgivings about this and tried to um, challenge um, the Fed on some occasions about this, um, and they tended to be shut up um, quite aggressively on occasion. Um, in my own case, when I started writing um, columns and articles which challenged the dominant creed of the risk dispersion was a good thing, or automatically a good thing, um, I had, again, a very strong reaction from some of the bankers and from some of the policy makers. It wasn't easy to challenge the conventional wisdom. So the bubble got bigger and bigger, and we labored away on page 423 of the FT, trying to write about it. And much to the um, credit of the editor of the FT, our pieces began to get onto page one. Um, and then, of course, it burst in such glorious, spectacular, horrific fashion. And I say glorious ironically. Um, and the events of the, the subsequent 18 months are pretty familiar to all concerned. And I can talk about that afterwards if people want. But essentially, if you then fast forward a few months after the crash, I was sitting there with a very strong sense that I wanted to try and find a way to communicate the story to a wider audience, to talk, as it were, beyond the realm of the people who usually read page 423 of the FT, um, and reach out to people who may not know that much about finance. Because something I do feel very passionately is that it's not enough to simply assume that financial Latin, or the CDO stuff, should be only handled by the financial priests, i.e. the CDO bankers, um, one of the reasons why we got into this mess was the lack of oversight. And there is a real need to try and communicate what's happened to um, society more broadly, if nothing else, to try and make sure it doesn't happen again. But the question one faces if one tries to write a compelling story of CDOs is how on earth do you find a vehicle that makes it sexy enough to speak to a wider audience? And so I reached back eventually, after some thought, to the original conversation I had back in Nice in 2005 and decided to try and tell the story by focusing on the tale of the Morgan Mafia. Or more precisely, some of the bankers who used to work for JP Morgan back in the 1990s and who created some of the ideas that fed into the um, innovation boom. And to try and use that personal story to illustrate the bigger financial dramas. Now, there are two um, big caveats I have to mention straight away. Firstly, these are the health warnings. Firstly, I wouldn't pretend for a millisecond that J.P. Morgan bankers were the only people who invented these ideas. Um, there were a number of people who also um, dreamt up concepts at different stages um, in recent decades. Um, and I do actually try and point that out um, in the book, 
In fact, JP Morgan didn't invent credit default swaps. That honor goes, I gather, to some people at Bankers Trust. Secondly, by focusing on JP Morgan bankers, I am not intending to say that I blame JP Morgan bankers for the disasters that have, have unfolded. Um, one of the terrible, bitter ironies of this entire story is that while some of the JP Morgan guys and women may have played a crucial role in um, unleashing the genie from the bottle in terms of innovation, um, they were not the ones who actually perverted those ideas with such disastrous consequences in subsequent years. On the contrary, they actually rather played it safe towards the end. Um, life is full of ironies, and this is a particularly spectacular irony. But I decided to tell the story of J.P. Morgan, and essentially um, the book is divided into three parts, um, which pretty much capture the unfolding of events as I see them. The first part is called Innovation, and that takes the story back to the late 1970s. And I think it's very important to start back then because it's been very easy in the hurly-burly of dramatic events that have overwhelmed us in the last two years to somehow assume that all of this was cooked up um, in the last you know, two or three years, that it's all Greenspan's fault, etc., etc. And in fact, it's incredibly important to realize that what has occurred has really grown out of a set of developments in finance that have been underway for the best part of three decades. Now, on what to, in one respect, the starting point can go back to the late 1970s with the birth of the derivatives industry in the Western financial world. Um, derivatives of some form, as most of you will know, have been around in some ways for centuries. I mean, you can go back to the Babylonian times um, for quasi-derivative contracts. Um, the Japanese had derivatives in the rice markets um, two or three centuries ago. Um, the commodities exchanges in America created derivatives back in the 19th century. But in the 1970s, bankers started applying the idea of derivatives to interest rates, creating products called interest rate swaps, which essentially allow bankers to swap floating and fixed rates between different contracts without having to actually rewrite the contracts themselves. Um, bankers often refer to this as synthetic finance because in a sense, you're creating um, almost out of thin air or in, cyber, in cyberspace a contract which doesn't actually change the underlying um, contract that has already been struck. So originally this was created in relation to interest rates, swaps, and then in the 19, early 1990s, bankers started to look at applying this idea to credit risk, to the type of um, default risk that banks take on when they lend people money or when they underwrite bonds, to see whether the same ideas could be applied there. And in some ways, this was simply a natural extension of what had already been done in the interest rate world. In other ways, though, it wasn't, because default risk is pretty crucial to the idea of what being a bank is. I mean, basically, if you are a bank, as perceived in the old-fashioned way, you collect money and you lend it out. And if somebody goes bust, you suffer losses. You, well, your job as a banker is to make sure they don't go bust. And your job as a banker is to make sure you always have enough reserves on hand, um, enough spare rainy day funds to protect yourself if people go bust, if your lenders go bust. But when you start entering a world where you can use derivatives, to ensure yourself against that risk or to try and sell it to somebody else, 
then suddenly the business of banking changes. You can make loans, and suddenly you're not on the hook anymore. In which case the question becomes, well, is there a limit to how many loans you can make if actually you're not actually on the hook anymore? How do you measure the limits of that? And at what point do you really care about whether you've actually got the deposits in the bank to make those loans or not? The concept of being a bank starts to change. Now, this wasn't the first time that the concept of bank had started to change. Even before the advent of derivatives, bankers had started to play around with the idea of shifting some of their loan risk by selling it to other people, selling the loans in some form, or getting banks to club together to share the risk as a group. That's what syndicated finance basically is about. But derivatives essentially um, turbocharged that process. And the people who really turbocharged it most of all were a small group of bankers in New York, and then also London to a lesser extent initially, um, who were playing around with the idea of creating these so-called credit default swaps. Um, now, for the purposes of trying to write um, a story which is understandable by a wider range of people, um, the event I've chosen to focus on, which became subsequently a bit of a sort of benchmark for some of them, was a great off-site in the Florida resort of Boca Raton back in 1994 when a bunch of them got together, and in between getting pretty drunk and throwing each other in the pool and having fisticuffs, um, they started to have a debate, the ones who were sober enough to, to think about it, um, and started to have a debate about credit default swaps, and they decided, you know, as a group, that they really wanted to go forward and um, explore that idea. Um, in reality, it then took several months for the whole thing to, to um, play out. But by the middle, mid to late 1990s, they had stumbled this J.P. Morgan team on a way to not merely write credit default swaps, but to do so on a large scale, to bundle them together um, using a structure that came to be known as Bistro. Um, technically, it was short for Broad Securitized um, Index Trust, no, Broad Index Securitized Trust Offering or something like that. Um, in reality, one of the team um, called it that because it, they wanted it to stand for BIS Total Ripoff, um, because one of the things that it did was to play around with the Basel rules about how much um, capital the banks needed to hold to offset the risk of loans. Coming back to the idea that when you start transferring the risk of loans, the whole idea of how much capital you need to hold starts to look very grey relative to how many loans you can actually pump out at the same time. Um, but they bundled these, these um, credit default swaps together, they created Bistro, um, and the idea began to take off like wildfire. Now, right from the beginning, the J.P. Morgan team who actually created this bistro idea spotted that there were potential flaws. Um, one of the challenges they had to deal with, which I won't go into right now because it is a bit technical, um, and you can read the book if you want to find out, but one of the challenges was about the degree to which they had to fund that original structure or not. And to cut a long story short, um, they got around that by basically only funding a very small part of the structure, leaving most of it unfunded. It kind of wafted around in a bit of a theoretical limbo land, and the regulators weren't quite sure how to treat it. it was, and they gave it a name called Super Senior and then sold it to AIG, um, which with later subsequent disastrous consequences. Um, but that was one of the problems they were grappling with. What do you do with Super Senior risk? Um, in fact, the, you know, in theory, the model suggested super senior risk was dead safe, 
and they could pile it up on their own balance sheet until the cows come home. Um, and of course, subsequently, lots of banks did. Um, the JP Morgan guys actually spotted that you know that may not be such a good idea quite early on, um, and they applied a bit of common sense, and they tried to get get rid of it, um, largely to AIG um, and others. Um, but that's sort of one interesting wrinkle about what happened. Another interesting wrinkle is that um, the JP Morgan guys started off playing around with their ideas in relation to corporate credit, primarily because that was their expertise. Um, subsequently, they tried once, and then again the second time a little bit, put, doing the same thing with mortgage debt. Um, they didn't know as much about mortgage debt because J.P. Morgan wasn't a mortgage bank, first and foremost. They thought, hey, let's give it a go. You know, They were at the final frontier of finance, let's keep exploring. Um, and they very quickly decided actually that was a really bad idea because there just wasn't enough data out there about how mortgages would behave in a downturn to actually make the models work. So they did it once um, with great misgivings. They did it again, and then they dropped it, even though they could have actually earned quite, some quite nice profits by going down that route. Um, but they were a pretty conservative team in some ways, ironically, um, which says a lot about the J.P. Morgan culture. Um, and they were pretty wary. So fast forward a couple of years to the early part of this decade, and J.P. Morgan undergoes a moderately disastrous merger as often happens in the banking world. And again, as often happens in the banking world, this little team break up and start scattering across the rest of Wall Street and the City of London. Um, I sometimes visualize it a bit like a sort of alien space pod, where basically the pod breaks up and bing, all these people scatter. And these ideas scatter too. And as they scatter, they start to fuse and blend with other ideas floating around with finance. Um, and one of the ideas that it starts to fuse and blend with in particular is the idea of slicing and dicing mortgage debt. Now, that stream of finance had been already developing for a couple of decades. Um, some of you in this room may be familiar with the work that was being done you know, really in the late 1970s, early 1980s, in terms of cr creating collateralized mortgage, mortgage obligations, bundling together mortgages, particularly in America, selling them to other investors or other banks, and trying to find ways to securitize them. Um, anyone who's read Liars Poker will know about the kind of early trading of mortgage bonds that was being done by the gunslingers um, at Solomon Brothers um, a good 15, 20 years ago. But essentially, what happened up until the early years of this decade, the mortgage slicing and dicing tribe had been a rather separate gang from the derivatives tribe. Um, they just really didn't talk to each other. They were different kinds of people. And in the early years of this decade, the two tribes began to collide. Ideas cross-fertilized, and bankers hit on the wonderful idea of taking subprime mortgage debt, slicing and dicing it, using all these derivative techniques, and creating a whole brave new world of, if you like, son of bistro products. Um, they called them CDOs, synthetic CDOs, all of that. Um, and it took off like a rocket. Um, because suddenly it became very lucrative. Of course, Alan Greenspan was busy slashing rates left, right, and center, and the regulators were de facto cheering the whole thing on um, for reasons which I can talk about if people want to ask questions afterwards. Now, the big bitter irony, as I mentioned before, is that as this whole wild mortgage innovation slash CDO innovation party um, took off, um, sparking along the way a big subprime boom because you could only create this stuff 
if you had the raw material to put it into it, which would mean, meant that you had to go out and make lots of subprime mortgage loans. As it took off, as lots of other banks copied the original ideas, in fact, JP Morgan itself rather sat on the sidelines as far as the mortgage slicing and dicing of debt was concerned. Um, that's partly because they were um, in chaos after their banking merger, their bad banking merger with Chase. So it was partly just sheer luck that kept them out. It was partly because, in fact, a few of the old JP Morgan team were still at the bank and tended to be rather conservative. And they were backed up in that stance by Jamie Dimon, um, the man who is now deemed to walk on water in the American financial world because he's one of the few great survivors. But he's a man who has fairly natural um, conservative bent as well. But that natural conservatism, although it was at foot at J.P. Morgan, at least in terms of mortgage slicing and dicing, um, doesn't mean they didn't do, do some, plenty of other stupid things. But on that point, they were quite conservative. Um, wasn't at work at other banks. And so other banks basically picked up these schemes and went completely mad. Um, they started piling up super senior debt on their books with gay abandon, um, having, in some senses, you know, conversations that were uncannily similar to what J.P. Morgan had discussed back in 1998 and 1999, um, but basically went in entirely the op opposite direction. And they started slicing and dicing mortgage debt. Now, the only thing that, in retrospect, is more remarkable than the degree to which that happened is the fact that, actually, most people had very little idea that it was going on on that scale, which comes back to my original point about um, the fact that when I was bouncing around in 2005 and 2006 trying to piece it together, I was continually shocked by the lack of holistic thinking and just how little the banks you seemed to know about what other banks were up to. And the point that brought me back, brought this home to me most um, powerfully of all, was that when it finally became clear after the credit bubble burst in 2007, just how stupid some of the other banks had been. It also became clear that, for the most part, the senior managers of the other banks hadn't known what their own traders had been up to or hadn't understood the implications at all. Um, but also, even at JP Morgan, they hadn't quite realized the degree to which other banks were engaging in these games. Um, in fact, ironically enough, some of the people who had actually created the BCRO structures in the first place um, insisted repeatedly to me, and, you know, hey, they might have been lying through their teeth, but, you know, I don't think so, that they hadn't realized the degree to which the bistro ideas were being used and abused all over the place to that scale. And these days, if you talk to them, you know, they are, as I describe in my book, um, they have a very mixed bag of emotions about it. I mean, some of them sit there and think, well, it wasn't really our job to stop other banks being so darn stupid. Um, you know, where, where on earth were the regulators? Well, it's a fair question, except that for many years the banking industry did try to keep the regulators off their back as much as possible. So it's a bit hard to ask where the regulators were as a banker if for all those years you wanted the regulators out of the room as much as possible. Um, some of them today, um, you know, say, well, maybe we should have known, maybe we, sh we should have um, done more to try and, you know, warn about this. Um, you know, one or two of them did spot it. Um, one character in my book in particular had a very good idea about what was going on um, and effectively traded against it. Um, he basically, you know, made hay off the back of the bank's stupidity. Um, you know, could he or should he have blown the whistle? Well, he tried to, but no one wanted to listen. It comes back to my point, is that people just didn't want to hear this kind of stuff all those years ago. 
Um, and, you know, his line is, you know, well, listen, you know, I would do everything I can to make the world a better place, but until that moment, I'm going to try and make money for my, for my investors. He runs a hedge fund, as you might guess. Um, but it's an extraordinary story, which basically, you know, when I stand here as an anthropologist, you know, allowing for my training, which is, tends to make me quite relativist, um, rather than avoiding, uh, rather than making, you know, shrill moral judgments, I tend to try and, you know, understand what happened um, and leave it up to the readers to um, decide what they think was good or bad about this. But in terms of, you know, the question of, you know, what the lessons are and where we go from here, um, I mean, I'm currently not in the camp who would say, well, I think that, you know, all innovation is bad, banks should be stopped from using, you know, complex products. Um, you know, the parallel I would often use is that, you know, just because people have misread the label on a bottle, a bottle of um, prescription drugs um, and maybe have got sick or just because one or two people have got, you know, gone wrong, doesn't mean you necessarily should ban all prescription drugs overnight. Um, so I wouldn't throw innovation out today, um, but it clearly has been abused on a chronic, terrifying scale. And we as a society need to rethink how we handle financial innovation, much as we need to look at how we handle, say, medical innovation, um, biological innovation, innovation in many other spheres of life. There clearly needs to be massive reform in the way that many banks are structured. The fact that so many banks did not understand what their own, or the senior management of so many banks did not understand what their own traders were up to points to chronic corporate governance failures. The fact that the regulators failed to understand what was going on points to a terrible failure as well. Um, part of the problem, I think, there is that the regulatory structures have become very fragmented in recent years, echoing the type of fragmentation we see in the um, private sector and the banking world. And the type of lack of holistic vision that um, worried me back in 2005, 2006, was not just a problem for banks, it was also a problem for the authorities. We, um, the policymakers tended to assume that monetary policy could be separated from financial policy, that regulating um, you know, one bank, banks could be regulated one by one without trying to connect up the dots. That has proved to be disastrous. But the other thing we need to do is to look very seriously at how banking fits in to the wider society. Because, you know, as I first um, felt when I went back to that conference, and went down to that conference in Nice in 2005, there has been a tremendous tendency in the financial world in the last couple of decades to regard finance as not simply almost a sacred type of um, profession but one that's almost semi-detached from the rest of society. Financiers, in a way, lived in a little um, bubble, a very comfortable bubble, where their contact with real life, with the consequences of what they were doing, was often minimal. Not many of the bankers who were slicing and dicing subprime debt ever actually saw what happened in a subprime community. Credit was viewed in terms of a set of mathematical equations rather than a set of social relations or something that affected society at large. Um, never mind the fact that the roots of the word credere come from the Latin to mean believe, which is fundamentally a social construct. And I remember being very struck in 2006 talking to a senior banker who was taking me to task for what he regarded as unnecessarily critical coverage of the credit world. And he said, well, why do you keep writing that 
modern credit is so complex and so opaque. It's not opaque. You can find whatever you need to know on a Bloomberg machine. So I said, well, what about the 99.9% of the population that doesn't have a Bloomberg machine? What do they do? And there was a 10-second pause, as if he hadn't quite thought about, you know, those other people. They didn't really matter. There was a strong sense that, you know, finance had become the master of the economy, not the servant. So at the end of the day, people have drawn up long lists about how we need to reform finance, how we need to introduce new regulations, change the way that policymakers work, change how bankers pay work, change how banks are structured. And much of that, you know, I would echo. But at the end of the day, I think we also need two basic words, common sense, which might sound like a complete cop-out. It might sound like the kind of hippie thing that an anthropologist would say. But common sense is basically a concept rooted in a big holistic vision. It's rooted in a sense of history. It's rooted in a realization that there is a wider world, that you need to be balanced, you need to keep things in proportion, you don't need to go mad. And to get common sense, you basically need oversight, you need connectivity. You need bankers to talk to the rest of the world and the rest of the world to watch what bankers are doing. And so when I think back to what's happened and my own story with JP Morgan, I often ask myself, if there had been a lot of politicians and journalists back in 2005 at that Nice conference, if the bankers had been forced to explain in a public way what they were up to, discuss it more widely, and think through the implications. And if people had asked more questions, then maybe, just maybe, some of the worst and crazy, crazy successes we've seen would not have got quite so crazy. That at least is my hope. And my hope in writing this book is that by shedding a bit of light onto this seemingly murky corner of Star Trek finance, maybe, just maybe, we'll lessen the chance of such a terrible cataclysm happening again. So thank you very much for listening, and I will take any questions. Can I bring you some water? Liquidity is useful everywhere. As Philip okay. says, liquidity uh, is important. Lady over there. Do you want to collect a few questions or do them one at a time? I'll do them one at a time, probably easier. Okay, very good. Thank you. Um, first of all, I'd like to commend your um, intellectual tenacity and your professionalism because uh, in many ways you've restored my faith in British journalism. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, because actually what you, were, what you were actually doing was trying <clears throat> to uncover and trying to shed light on something which was previously or willfully, um, you know, interred. You know, it was, it was you know, clearly um, very complex and you very cleverly tried to fit all the pieces together. I'm still getting my head around um, all the various terminology, you know, deriv derivatives, super senior risk, and, and all the rest of it. But um, my question was, in your opening, you said that, um, you know, many people outside of the industry simply didn't understand what was going on. They didn't have a holistic picture, which is what you were able to bring mm. to bear. And I'd just like to question whether it was, you know, whether it really was, um, you know, a lack of, um, you know, over overview, or whether it was rather deliberate concealment of what was going on. Because, you know, many newspaper proprietors, quite frankly, will have direct and indirect links with the financial world. So I just question whether it really was innocent, you know, we really didn't know what was going on, or whether people actually knew, but actually made the decision not to actually report on this. Um, okay, was there some great conspiracy to cover it all up um, question? Um, I don't think there was. 
banks would often be very difficult in supplying information. And, you know, there were lots of things that they were on a micro level trying to keep quiet. But I don't think there was any kind of, you know, deliberate plan by, you know, little Kabbalah bankers like, let's keep this all hush-hush in that sense. What there was, though, was basically a situation that developed that suited the elites, the banking world, just fine. Because the lack of scrutiny, the lack of oversight, meant that basically they could do pretty much whatever they wanted. Um, and, you know, I'm a great believer, and this comes out of the anthropological tradition, I mean, in every society, pretty much, that exists, the elites, the people in charge, try to not merely control the means of production, to be a bit Marxist, but they try to control um, the rhetoric, the dialogue. Um, and as people like Pierre Bourdieu, um, some of you may have studied, um, will know that it's actually the rhetorical control that can be as important, if not more important, than the actual control of the actual economic resources. And in that respect, it's not merely what's said that matters, it's what's not said. It's the areas that are taken for granted, that go ignored, the social silences, if you like. Um, and this was a classic area of social silence, which kind of suited the system just fine. So it doesn't require a deliberate conspiracy. It simply requires plenty of people to turn a blind eye to a pattern. And that just crops up over and over again. It's as, as old as human nature, but it doesn't mean that we don't need to continually fight it. Okay. Gentleman here. Thank you. Uh, is this on? Yes, hello. Um, I, I'm an alumni of both the, the LSE and Bankers Trust, and I've taken a, a great interest in all of what's gone on, and I still work in the city. Um, my question really is, how much of this could have gone on if the central bankers hadn't also at the same time been letting liquidity go at quite such a, a frenetic pace? I mean, it, it strikes me that if there's mm -hmm. one thing that at the root of the, the credit crisis, it's the fact there's too much credit around. Uh, yep. And this is undoubtedly a very bad symptom, but it's a symptom, not the cause. Mm -hmm. Um, I, would, I would broadly agree with that. Um, the reason I chose to talk about the symptom, not just the cause, is because actually the cause has been quite widely discussed. Um, the symptom less so, and the symptom still important. Um, another way to explain it is basically, you know, I'm explaining the channels through which this excess liquidity was dispersed. The one caveat I would make, though, is this, that um, precisely because the innovation became so frenetic, there was not merely a pull factor in terms of lots of cheap liquidity coming through the system. There was also, if you like, a push factor in that people were slicing and dicing loans so fast that they were creating the illusion of there being even more credit than there actually was, in a sense. Um, I mean, the classic example of this is that, you know, from 2005 onwards, um, in Europe, you know, technically the ECB and co were trying to raise rates and bump up the cost of borrowing. Um, the cost for leveraged companies of actually borrowing was going down because bankers were so busy creating CLOs that there was a frenetic demand for loans which kept the, um, kept the um, price of loans going up and so the cost of borrowing going down. And so it actually, if you like, exacerbated the problem. And the other thing I'd say is precisely because this innovation was so complex and so poorly understood, the degree to which leverage was building up in the system as a result of this um, excess liquidity um, was very poorly understood. It was basically, basically concealed. I mean, the BIS kept trying, saying, you know, we think there's far too much leverage out there. Um, we really must try and try and measure it. Um, the Fed, which tended to look at measures of leverage that were based on things like LTCM, um, would say, well, no, if you look at the metrics that we used, you know, around the time of LTCM, it really ain't too bad. 
Um, but people couldn't see just how bad things were getting because of the complexity of the channels through which it was being dispersed. Does that, does that make sense? Okay, uh, the gentleman in the dark suit over there. And then we move upstairs. Yes, yes, yes. You have not been forgotten yet. Thank you. Uh, Julian, you may have been taken to task by some bankers who you've spoken to over the past few years, but I can say that, in, at least in my bank, uh, we have a tremendous amount of respect for you. So thank you for your transparent Can reporting. I ask which bank that was? Uh, ING. You have your fans All right. there. All right. Um, the, the, the point I'd like, I just wanted to make was, um, do you think it's fitting that uh, the man who um, oversaw the establishment of the tripartite uh, governance system in the UK um, who um, presided over the ascent of the city, who turned a blind eye and allowed light-touch regulation, is now a member of the Morgan Mafia. Who, who might be still wondering, is Tenny Blair. Yeah, 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 no, 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 yeah, no, no. Um, I, think that's a fair, I think that's a fair question. And it's something which, you know, I would encourage, you know, people to, to raise. Um, you know, I go back to my anthropological image of a village. You know, elites tend to club together. Okay, the gentleman had a back up there. Uh, thank you very much, Julian. Uh, I uh, again commend and thank you. I look forward to reading your book. A uh, qu uh, two quick questions. Uh, firstly, to um, to follow on from the uh, um, the, um, the politician's view. Um, you talk about confidence and debt levels and leverage and things like that. Are we seeing a repeat of the bank, uh, the bank asset levels in government now and borrowing and borrowing and is it going to suddenly explode at some point? And secondly, do you think we'll ever get real confidence back in the City of London? Um, on the issue of the debt levels of governments, um, yes, there is definitely um, a danger that we will see um, market concern grow on that one. Um, I wouldn't pretend otherwise. Um, I don't see at the moment much alternative to running that risk. But, you know, going forward, I mean, the choices that are available right now to the governments are pretty ghastly, however you slice and dice them. Um, so, yes, debt is now a dirty word in every sense. Confidence back in the City of London? Oh, um, it's going to take a long time. You know, trust once shattered takes a long time to restore be that in your personal life or in the financial system as a whole. Right, the lady at the back. Hello there. <clears throat> Could you please tell us, as a consumer, I very much think, although you say there hasn't been a conspiracy, now that we all have become aware of all this, um, to think of the rating companies like Standard & Poor, the accountants who were cooking the books for these people, the economists, the paymasters, the chief executives. Where is the legal accountability? Where is the legal action against these people? As professionals, we would be held accountable by the law of negligence. Mm -hmm. I don't see it happening. The bankers are already out there complaining bitterly that there is a witch hunt against them because the regulator now wants to, to put a ceiling on their pays, their bonuses, etc. Where's the legal action from the consumers' organizations and from the government? Um, what has happened in the financial sector in the last few years is absolutely terrible. Um, not least because it's shattered the lives of so many people 
who frankly didn't even know what a CDO was until this whole thing blew up, and probably still don't know what a CDO is. Um, and that is one of the horrific aspects of what has gone on. Um, one of the problems is, and this is particularly an issue um, about the debate in America right now, is yes, there may be cases where bankers or rating agencies or others broke the laws as they are currently written. Um, I suspect they are fairly far and few between because the whole point about so much of this innovation was that people were flying to the very edge of the laws, they were dancing around the laws, they were being innovative to find ways to avoid breaking the law. Um, so it's going to be very hard to, to pin breaches of the law on the industry. Um, now there was a huge breach of ethics, but then you know we as a society have to decide, well are we going to retrospectively change the law, are we going to you know, go after people because of breaches of ethics. I mean, this applies to people like, you know, Fred Goodwin, for example, um, who I have no idea whether he did or did not break the law. But if it turns out he didn't break the law, he merely breached enormous banking ethics, he breached common sense, you know, do we then punish him or not? Um, you know, in medicine, which in some ways is a very good parallel because you have the same pattern where you have a tiny pool of um, experts who understand what's going on in medicine and the vast majority of consumers who haven't got the foggiest idea and you kind of have to trust a doctor in a sense to make sense of it. You know, there are concepts of malpractice in medicine. You can be struck off the register. There ain't like that kind of practice in finance. Maybe there should be. Maybe we should be asking bankers to become trained um, professionals. Maybe they should be malpractice codes and things like that. But there aren't at the moment. And so the dilemma we're faced with right now is do we try and seek retribution, if you like, at the cost of potentially ripping up some of the principles that guide our society today about respect for the law? Um, or do we recognize that basically this was an appalling systemic failure and there simply aren't easy scapegoats to burn or, you know, or easy people to actually blame in terms of one or two people? I mean, I'm, I can see you're shaking your head. and. If there is a way, and believe me, there are a lot of lawyers in America right now who are frantically looking for ways. Yeah, but you know, if there is a way, believe me, half the population of England will cheer right now, is what I can say. Um, I am not sure there is a way. Thank you. Uh, the gentleman in the front there was, was perched on the edge of the balcony. Yes. Julian, Julian um, I invested in J.P. Morgan in the early 90s, and I got out in 1999 because reading their accounts, even though they did portray themselves as being very blue-blooded, they did see, I found difficulty as a chartered accountant to understand some of the things they were getting into, even though I understand derivatives, etc. I think fundamentally you've actually touched on the key point, which is in fact a lack of ethics. Um, you, if, if I put in front of everybody here 10 million pounds and we put it underneath everybody's seat and we said, right, we would like you to leave that money there, don't touch it, I could guarantee by the end of uh, an hour almost everybody in this room would have some, somehow succumbed and would have said, right, I'm taking that money. Unfortunately, there is the banking. Banking is not really a profession. 
Um, it's rather like law. 25 years ago, law, I would have said, was a profession. It is no longer a profession. There are, in theory, codes of ethics which apply to lawyers. Anybody who knows lawyers knows that those do not apply. If you actually, if, if you did actually, if you imposed, if you got bankers to take certain professional qualifications, not just the CFA and not just doing an MBA, and you said, right, we're going to impose, uh, impose uh, um, a sort of professional ethics and you will ban those people if they um, uh, get beyond there, then I think, yes, you would, you would sort out this mess. Unfortunately, though, it comes back to basic greed. And when you put, put a situation where you're tempting people, you can say, put 10 million pounds under anybody's seat, I can guarantee whether you're a vicar, you're the Archbishop of Canterbury, you're the director of the LSE, somehow people will find a way of saying, I want that. So I would say that we've got to try to get this, uh, get the, uh, the banking industry setting it up as a professional organization, professional body, and saying, sorry, we will remove you. Well, that's a, that's a good set of points. I should explain, I mean, my book is actually divided into three parts. I mean, part one is innovation, kind of self-explanatory. Part two, it, part two is perversion, and part three is disaster. Um, and what I was trying to essentially capture is that if you strip apart the idea of, say, credit default swaps, you know, the fundamental premise behind it is not dumb. You know, it's actually not a bad idea. If, you've, if you're a bank and you've got a gazillion loans to construction companies, it's not a bad idea to try and insure yourself against some of that construction risk. Um, but, you know, what were basically a set of ideas that were not dumb, potentially quite useful, um, I think did get completely spun out of control and perverted by greed put it crudely. Yeah. Well, and, and, by, and by the way, you know, if the people who invent brilliant new techniques for nuclear power, you know, splitting the atom, doing X, Y, and Z, and running p nuclear power stations, if they were paid per unit of energy that they pumped out, um, and were thus given an incentive to pump out more and more and more energy no matter what, and no matter what the end demand for energy was, or electricity was, I'm quite sure that the nuclear power station would have blown up all by now as well. Very good. Gentleman in the white shirt over there. Incidentally, nobody gets out of bed for 10 million quid anymore. It's just a billion, sister. <laughs> billion, sister, small change of finance. <laughs> yeah, gentleman, over, uh, gentleman over there in the, in the white sweater, uh, whitish. Yes, you mentioned the innocence of many people and not understanding what, what went on. But in this country, we did set up the FSA. Clearly, the FSA screwed up. You know, let's not beat around the bush. Um, their remit was to look at individual banks and work out whether each individual bank met the set of rules which had been handed to the FSA. So you went in there, you ticked boxes. You know, yes, they meet this rule, yes, they meet that rule. They didn't stop to ask whether, in fact, the rules were nuts, and they didn't stop to ask whether, in fact, collectively, if you added together what all the banks were doing, that was nuts as well. Um, you know, their remit was to look at individual trees, not the entire wood. Um, the Bank of England had a remit to, in a sense, have a, you know, cast a glance at the wood overall in terms of, you know, financial stability. Um, but they were encouraged, for a whole bunch of reasons, to focus more on monetary stability than actual financial stability, partly because they thought, somewhat naively, that the channel through which money flowed around the economy didn't matter that much. 
Um, and anyway, they had no power to tell the individual trees what to do. Um, they could merely mutter darkly about how the wood overall was looking. So between them, basically, most of the important things fell completely between the cracks. I mean, it was disastrous. No two ways about it. Um, however, it was not merely disastrous. You know, it was not merely a UK disaster. It was disastrous in the US too, and in pretty much everywhere else. <laughs> and what do you think the government would have done? I mean, gee whiz, you know, hey, we're getting amazing tax revenues from the City of London. You know, half of our government is advised by powerful bankers who are donating to the government. You know, what a good idea to shut it down tomorrow, you know, yeah. Um, I mean, the only people who basically, um, you know, in any sense whatsoever come off rather commendably in some ways are the central bank of Spain, okay. Now, let's leave out for a minute the fact that Spain has had a crazy, nutty housing bubble, okay, because that doesn't make them look very good. And let's leave out for the minute the fact that the CAIAs, the saving institutions in Spain, are just a disaster, okay? So, allowing for those caveats, one thing that Spain did do was to basically say, we think Basel II is a bit nuts. We don't believe in all this, um, you know, allowing banks to basically put on lots more mortgage um, loans on their books and running off balance sheet ban um, structures. You know, we think that's a bad idea. So even though almost every other country um, was busy merrily going down the route of Basel II, Spain basically was a bit of a maverick and it introduced additional regulations for its banks, which helped it to avoid some of the worst sins. I mean, you know, never mind the housing bubble, et cetera, et cetera. In some respects, Spain actually did a bit better. Um, Germany, rather sweetly, um, had kind of a similar idea. They didn't much like Basel II either in some respects, but the Germans, being good Germans, um, decided they'd better stick to the letter of the law and whereas the Spanish were willing to basically rip it up and just ignore it and do whatever they wanted, um, the Germans, as they say to me very earnestly, we, you know, we don't believe in gold plating. If the law is the law, we have to stick to the letter of the law. So there you go. But um, yes, and in short, um, the regulatory approach of the last decade in the UK, as in almost everywhere else, has been disastrous. Right, the gentleman right at the back there, waving his hand. No, you're not right at the back, you're almost at the front. <laughs> good try, good try. Good try. <laughs> I, uh, thanks for coming. Um, firstly, I'd just like to say that um, it's always nice to see VFT handed out for free on campus. So if that could continue, good. that'd be great. Please go and buy it as well to pay my salary. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just curious to see how much of, in your reporting and um, investigations, how much political influence you saw in London and Washington uh, happy to see a credit boom and actively uh, pushing a credit boom uh, forward. You mean, was there basically a conscious plot by our political leaders to stuff the population with lots of credit and make us all fat and happy and uh, over-leveraged? <sighs> Again, this comes back to, you know, motive, plan, conspiracy or not. I mean, I don't think that people sat there in Washington or in London and said, gee whiz, let's try and persuade the population to take out you know, loan-to-value mortgages of, you know, 105%. Um, but, you know, it's a classic situation, and the most deadly things that destroy societies are the times when people simply turn blind eyes, go with the flow. Um, you know, it's all rather comfortable. Um, it's, you know, that old saying that it's almost impossible to make a man understand if his, job, if his job depends on it. And if you say instead it's almost impossible to make a man understand if his voters love it, um, then, you know, you basically cut to the nub of the problem. Um, of course, there were great political reasons in the U.S. to encourage the subprime boom. 
And yes, to a certain extent, the um, political cheerleading for the subprime industry, I think, did stoke that bubble up. But the fact that bankers were slicing and dicing so assiduously um, those subprime loans into CDOs and had a voracious demand for subprime loans, um, I would say played as big, if not bigger, role than the political, you know, overt political plans. Okay. But, uh, again, no, not yet soon. Um, <laughs> at the back. He's a professor, I'm not. Yeah. Yeah, no. Thanks very much. I was going to ask, is there, um, is the danger not being caused actually by the fact that there's a lot of roles which are traded between the politicians and the bankers in, in the sense that there's a lot of bankers who are moving in, sorry, who are um, ex-politicians who move into banking um, or to advise the, um, the banking corporations who then have oversight on exactly how to l change and manipulate the laws basically to suit their needs. So in effect, the laws which are produced do not actually serve the purpose of, of regulating the bankers because the laws essentially are, are satisfying the bankers' needs just to operate. And, and also, is there, in terms of the, you know, the, um, the power which their lobbyists have, in, for example, America right now, I think um, you know, Barack Obama, his, his um, political campaign was literally funded hugely by you know, some of the US banking corporations like Goldman Sachs and all the others. So th this kind of trading of roles and that, you know, there isn't that clear separation. You've got, obviously, um, Tony Blair going into J.P. Morgan to advise them, for example. Gives J.P. Morgan huge insight into how the political establishment works and how to, you know, how to deal with the laws. And is there, is, is there a not, not a need to actually have that kind of clear separation or some kind of time frames? Um, well, I actually mentioned in my book towards the end, I mean, it's one of the, you know, the epilogues when they're in Davos and... Um, you know, J.P. Morgan throws a big party um, a couple of months ago, um, you know, and none other than Tony Blair was there, along with Al Gore, um, you know, which kind of indicates, you know, basically J.P. Morgan is now trying to beat Goldman Sachs at his own game in terms of activating its alumni network and using um, savvy political connections, you know. On one level, you know, that is only to be expected. I mean, the great thing about anthropologists is that you don't have any illusions about how society works, you know. You kind of know, you start off with the assumption that elites are going to try and hang on to their power. Um, that is kind of a universal, almost universal condition of, you know, humankind. Um, and I say the downside of anthropology is you tend to be very relativist and, you know, you don't make too many moral judgments. Um, you know, I'd say that, you know, it is given that elites will try and control, hang on to their power. What has played out in the city of London in the last decade or two is on one level entirely natural. It doesn't mean it's good. It doesn't mean we shouldn't seek checks and balances. Um, yes, there is a case for creating some kind of guidance and rules. Um, one of the problems is, though, if you stop politicians from having ways of making money after being politicians, you may not get many people wanting to be politicians in the first place. You know, I would argue then that you have to go back and think, well, what are we paying our politicians, for example? But then you unleash a much wider structural debate. Um, the one thing I would come back to, though, and this is entirely self-serving, um, but hey, banking self-serving, um, is that, you know, sunlight is a great disinfectant. The more transparency, the more that we actually have an active press that can actually shed light on it and at least open up the issues so that people can talk about it and discuss it, the better. And, you know, again, at the risk of talking my own book, and not this book, but as a journalist, um, unless we have a decent financial press, we have very little chance of building a decent financial system. 
You should really require people to be independently wealthy before they go into politics, rather than <laughs> going into politics to become dependently wealthy. <laughs> but, uh, the gentleman over there, finally, yes. Normally, Americans are not slouchers when it comes to selling something next door. Could you use the mic, please? Uh, uh, you can hear me, I presume. Yeah, but I can, but the people behind you can't. Uh, normally, Americans are not slouchers when it comes to selling whatever they, uh, whatever sells at that time. And all they had to do was go next door. And how come, the ca if you look at a ranking of the market cap of banks in the world, now putting aside the, uh, the Chinese juggernauts, whom do we see? The Canadians, I think, out of the 10 first, four or five are Canadian banks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, no, I would say, I mean, you know, the Americans often deride the Canadians for being a bit boring. Um, boring is quite fashionable these days. Um, <laughs> and the Canadians appear to have exhibited a remarkable degree of common sense. You know, um, doesn't mean they were perfect. I mean, they had this minor thing called um, leveraged super senior structures crop up on, in Canada to a very large degree, which were basically you know, appalling off-balance sheet vehicles um, that went completely mad. Um, and unfortunately, quite a lot of Canadian savers got burnt on those. Um, but you know, yes, the Canadians do appear to have exhibited common sense. And they know there should be a great study going on now. Perhaps it could be a PhD topic, um, but maybe the government should be doing it too, for looking at those countries which managed to exhibit a bit more common sense than the others and working out why. Um, the key point I forgot to mention in the case of Spain was that A, um, of course, um, supervision is inside the central bank in Spain, not separated. Um, I'm in the camp of those who actually think it's actually a rather good idea if central banks um, keep control of quite a lot of financial regulation. Um, but B, um, the Spanish had the great advantage of having suffered a banking crisis within living memory. And have been so scarred by that, they tended to be quite cautious. And one of the biggest reasons why things went so completely bonkers um, in the last couple of decades was because we'd had this, you know, nice decade, the great moderation. People in America, to a certain extent, had forgotten that things could turn very nasty. Okay, the gentleman down here. Yes, just a couple of comments. How culpable do you think the politicians have been in um, the, the ideology of the last 20 years has been that um, you know, some people on, on the right were saying we don't need any regulation at all because you know, bankers, the, the idea of governments actually telling bankers what to do is, is ludicrous. You know, the bankers wouldn't take huge risks to destroy their own banks. And uh, you know, people like John River were saying in the last could year. Could you have a question, please? In the last year, he was saying the mortgage markets should be totally unregulated. Mm. And that, but do you think that um, ideology has played a part in this? And could any system of regulation have prevented this? Um, there is this idea among certain politicians that if we went back to the um, you know golden age. 50 years ago, with, where you had the governor, the governor's eyebrow, who would um, point the finger at um, naughty bankers, everything would have been all right. But I'm suspecting things are so complex these days. It, you know, it's 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 a complete anachronism in a, in this day and age. 
Is there any, basically any system that would work in the future? Um, well. oh, yes, one other thing. What's that thing? When Overend and Gurney went bust in 1866, all the directors and the, some of the managers were charged with fraud. And most of them were found not guilty, but that's beside the point. But that's <laughs> on a point of information. Right, right. Um, well, ideology played a crucial role. I mean, I talk about this in my book at some length. Basically, the derivatives world, the OGC derivatives world was driven, and the J.P. Morgan team was driven by a very strong um, sort of you know, ideological framework that worshipped at the ultra-free markets and did not like government intervention and regulation and state control at all. And there was a very strong feeling that actually you know, markets are self-regulating, um, there are natural checks and balances, um, that if you have government interference, it will cross, crush innovation, and you should basically let rip. And one of the reasons why you know people loved you know OTC derivatives was because it was you know the ultimate pure free market, you know, market for risk, if you like. Um, people would talk about things like market completion as being one of the great attributes of derivatives. Um, in retrospect, it was an absolute um, illusion because, in fact, it wasn't a free market at all. There were always accounting rules, regulations, etc., distorting it, and you had a cabal of dominant banking players who didn't really allow truly free markets to exist. But that was certainly the driving um, force. And one reason why um, regulators didn't play a more activist role this decade was because, you know, the Fed, as I've um, mentioned before, not only believed that slicing and dicing risk had made the system safer, but to a large extent had also adopted this very free market um, ideology. Very good. There are three more questions. The gentleman at the back there, and then the gentleman in the far corner, and then the young man in the white shirt there. And that's it, folks. Sorry. Um, um, hour. Yeah, th thank you very much for a very important contribution and a very good talk, uh, Julian. My, my question is uh, basically, how much do you think your book is uh, contributing to the atmosphere of, or negative atmosphere, I believe, of uh, finger pointing, especially towards uh, the bankers? And um, uh, given that you, you talked about uh, bankers being more connected to society and having a greater understanding of their impact. I mean, I wouldn't expect, or nobody would expect the minicab driver to know how the engine works in, in their car. Is there not a case of complexity in contemporary global societies that no one group, whether it be the bankers, etc., can be expected to understand uh, sufficiently well? And, and what are your views on that specifically? My question specifically is, is your book not contributing to this negative finger pointing, I, sus I suspect? Um, well, it's an issue which I have been, you know, on one level torturing myself about because by focusing on the J.P. Morgan group, um, I wasn't meaning to make them the subject of a witch hunt at all. Um, I was looking for a vehicle to try and communicate the story. Um, and, you know, I was trying to I make it very clear. Um, you know, I tried to paint a picture as fairly as I can and let the reader decide what they think or don't think. Um, so I hope I haven't contributed to the witch hunt. Um, I hope I've actually helped to understand, um, or I've helped to promote a, a more subtle and nuanced understanding of what's been going on um, than many of the stereotypes that have been advanced over the last 18 months. In terms of the issue of complexity, um, I mean, that really cuts to the core of the dilemma um, because the problems that have, have unfolded in finance are not just about finance, it's about the world we live in much more broadly. Essentially, the challenge is that 
as innovation grows apace, as we live in a world that becomes more and more complex, more and more, more, and more, and more specialized, where we have the potential to do more and more amazing things, um, we are caught on the horns of a terrible dilemma. On the one hand, there is now a greater premium than ever for us to understand how all the bits add up, connect up, because they are connected. And if you ignore how one bit works, it has the potential for throw the spanner in the works of the entire machine. But as the world becomes more complex, it becomes harder and harder for anyone to understand how it all adds up together. People become more and more specialized and siloized, I and mean, it's an ugly word, but you know what I mean. Um, people become too damn busy to understand how it all connects up. Um, and you know, that is the essential challenge of, what we, of the world we live in today. And I don't have any easy answers. Better education would start. Um, better oversight, checks and balances. But we need to think urgently about checks and balances, not just in the world of finance, but in so much else of the world around us. Thank you very much for all your interesting columns um, in the FT. Many, like myself, I think, can consider you the literary equivalent of Robert Preston. To some extent. My question is very simple. How pivotal was the Lehman Brothers event? Do you think that had Lehman Brothers been propped up, the contagion would not have taken place or already the damage was done? Um, I think that it was absolutely crucial um, because up until that point, although faith had collapsed in almost every other aspect of modern finance, one thing that had underpinned trust until that point was this idea that actually the governments wouldn't let a big bank go down and that creditors, people holding bonds issued by large banks, were basically okay. They thought that because um, ever since continental Illinois, an American bank had collapsed about two decades before, creditors had pretty much been protected. Um, and when that last vestige of trust, the last pillar, if you like, which had upheld the system after faith in rating agencies, shadow banks, and banks had been smashed away. That last pillar of faith was smashed away too. Frankly, nobody had a focused idea of what they could believe in anymore. And it's fascinating what happened in the wake of Lehman Brothers, which is basically the capital markets broke down. It's as simple as that. They stopped working. For the last three decades, the financial world had drunk the Kool-Aid, which basically said, the old-fashioned way of doing banking, of gathering together deposits and lending them out, that is kind of dead. These days we have capital markets, and these spread risk and trade risk all over the world with millions of investors, and that's a much better way to operate. Um, <clears throat> and basically, banks had started relying on that for their operations, both in terms of funding themselves and in terms of selling on what was on their balance sheets. Um, and they assumed it worked, just like we all live in a world where we all assume the internet has changed the way that communications worked, and it's a much better way of sending messages than, say, snail mail or mobile phones. Um, now imagine a world where basically you woke up one day and there were no internet connections, there were no mobile phones. Suddenly the only thing that worked was snail mail, and yet you all had businesses which depended on internet. I mean, that's basically what happened post Lehman Brothers. Any business, that, any bank which had believed in capital markets was at risk of collapsing, effectively. Um, so it was immensely important. Um, now, you can argue, you know, would we have had a slow, corrosive, you know, lurch towards disaster without Lehman Brothers collapsing? Well, maybe. Because the one thing that Lehman Brothers collapse did do was to provide the political jolt that finally convinced politicians for the first time 
that it was time to actually use taxpayers' money to start nationalising banks. Because, in fact, until that point, the idea of actually using taxpayers' money had been entirely taboo. It was only after that we began to see good bank, bad bank discussions, you know, let's nationalise a few banks properly, blah, 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 you know, which you may or may not regard as a good, good thing. Um, so that, on one level, you know, maybe without that having happened, we would have just had a long, corrosive, you know, downward lurch until politicians came to that point. But um, that's a long-winded way of saying that, you know, yes, Lehman Brothers was crucial. And the last one, the gentleman over there. Um, you mentioned the failure of the regulators and the bankers, and they've been persecuted um, by quite a few people. But what about consumers? I mean, I think it's unfair to expect people to un understand you know, the intricacies of CDOs and, and leverage. But don't you think that a wider I mean, the question basically is, were consumers dumb? You know, are they at fault too? Um, okay, the parallel I draw here is with the food industry, you know. Um, you know, a few decades ago, it was kind of considered okay for people just to stuff their faces with whatever they wanted kind of thing without reading the label. I mean, plenty of people still do that. It's their right. It's kind of dumb. You know, as a responsible human being, you're expected to pay a little bit of attention to what the food you are eating and where it comes from. And if you stuff yourself stupid so you become incredibly fat, um, then that is a bit silly too, you know. I mean, I'm not trying to say that, you know, I, I'm not in the camp that says, you know, nanny state, let's tell everyone to go running tomorrow. But there is such a thing as a responsibility of thinking about how you, you know, organize your life. So no, you don't need to be an expert in food science, but yes, eating 20 burgers on a trot is probably not a good idea. I would use that parallel with um, finance. Um, except I would say that, you know, in the same way that we don't expect, we, you know, there has to be trust in the system. You know, if you go to a supermarket and buy food that's stamped, you know, 103 calories, you expect it to have 103 calories, and you expect that if that supermarket actually turns out to have stuffed it full of 120 calories or 2,000 calories and filled it full of salt, there will be a consumer outcry, and that supermarket will get fined. That's the kind of model which actually is not dumb to apply to the financial world too. Okay. Well, thank you very much for a most <laughs> stimulating <laughs> set of answers.